Uh, this is Psalm 46 and it's the NIV translation. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Thank you. God, who is father and creator and mother and brother and home to all of us, we thank you that you are our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. I thank you that because of who you are, because of your welcome of us, because of the fact that you fight for us, that we do not have reason to fear. But we confess that we get anxious a lot and we get fearful a lot. And I've been fearful and anxious today. But I thank you that you are a safe place, that you are a refuge. And so I pray that today as we listen to the words of the Bible and and talk about the implications of those for our lives, I pray that you would again be refuge for us, that you would again send out your spirit to calm the waters of chaos that sometimes rage around us and in us, and that you would bring peace, that you would bring stillness, and that you would help us to find quiet in you. I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Psalm 46 is one of my favorite psalms. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, partly because of that concept of refuge and safety, you've already heard me harp on about it so many times. It's very central to my understanding of who God is and who we are called to be as people made in the image of God. It's also really central to me because uh, it's, it's one of those things that leaps to mind really, really constantly for me. God is a refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. It's something that is a refrain in my life that I need to remind myself of over and over again. For a lot of people, this psalm is really well known because of verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. For a lot of people, that's been a refrain that has helped quiet them and still them at times when they've been troubled. Uh, Another reason for me why I love Psalm 46 is not just the word refuge, but help. In, in verse 1, because um, you might be aware that in Genesis chapter 2, uh, I think it's verse 18, when God creates woman in that second creation account uh, and says to Adam, to this earthling that has already been created, uh, I'm going to create a helper for you. And that word helper in the Hebrew uh, is a word that appears around about 19 times in the Old Testament, uh, depending on how you Um, yeah, kind of conjugate the word, but it appears about 19 times in the Old Testament. And a lot of people have in the past taken that word helper to mean um, God created women to do the dishes for men. 
God created women to uh, do the vacuuming and make the meals and, you know, and do all this stuff so that men could go out there and be a hero and woman is just a helper, like a secondary thing. And so I love this psalm because it's one of the 16 times in the Old Testament when the word helper that appears in Genesis 2.18, it's one of the 16 times when that word appears referring to God. Okay, So of that word help or helper, when it appears in the Bible in the Old Testament 19 times, 16 of those times it's referring to God. And so that word reminds me that uh, God is my help and that me being created as a help to others is part of being created in the image of God. And it's not because I'm less than or worthless or somehow under the feet of, but it's because I'm called to participate in caring for others and aiding others and protecting others just as God is help to me. Does that make sense? So I love this psalm because it's got some really core concepts. Um, it's also famous because Martin Luther, who was one of the guys who started the Protestant Reformation, there was actually kind of a few reformations breaking out at the time. He wasn't the only one. Uh, he's probably the most famous. But Martin Luther made it famous because he turned it into a hymn. Um, it's a really weird hymn, the way it's been translated into English. Uh, the first line in English says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And I'm like, who takes their bull for a walk anyway? Like, what is that thing? But anyway, it's actually not taking your bull for a walk. It's a B-U-L-W-A-R-K, which is part of a ship that, like, helps it to stay afloat. And is pre- anyway, it's, it's apparently a really good thing. Uh, but Martin Luther took this hymn and made it a battle hymn. And it was all about conquering his enemies because he had fights with quite a, quite a few people. So on the one hand, it's a battle hymn for people like Martin Luther. And on the other hand, it's, it's this psalm of peace and a desperate cry for help and for safety and for refuge for lots of other people, including people like me. For me, it's always been about refuge. It's always about finding safety about God and becoming someone who is safe for other people. But the other thing that happens in this psalm is that we see God's power, uh, God's sovereignty, if you want to put it that way, over all different spheres. We see God as being sovereign over nature. We see God as being sovereign over those that are attacking God's people at the time. Um, We see God being sovereign over the whole chaotic world when it's at war and it's in crazy times. Uh, And so there's this sense of God being a safe place no matter where the chaos in your life is coming from, whether it's natural chaos, internal chaos, external chaos, worldwide chaos, God is a refuge for us. Uh, It's also a psalm that's really personal. It's written in first person um, nouns uh, and and so it speaks to us personally and it speaks in really personal tones. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just go through this psalm in three little sections and talk about uh, what it means broadly and what it means for me. And then we're going to talk at the end about how it might apply to us today and the challenges that it gives to us. If you want a drink or chocolate, feel free to get up and grab that while I'm talking. Don't feel that you are confined to your chair or your cushion. All right, so section one that Sammy read says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. It starts off by centering God. God is in bold, not just in the English, but in the Hebrew as well. It's all about God being a safe place. And then it says, therefore we will not fear. You see, at the start of this psalm, the author is hurting. The 
author is not in a great place. Uh, in fact, the phrasing that we find in that first verse is something that comes up a lot in what we call psalms of lament. Uh, psalms of lament are the crying psalms. They're the psalms where the author sounds like they are in a period of depression or darkness, which is something I can relate to a lot. And in the Psalms of Lament, this kind of phrasing comes up a lot. And so at the beginning, uh, the author seems like um, they're making this bold statement, God is our our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Probably what's actually going on is the author is kind of speaking to themselves, reminding themselves, because their world is scary right now. And so they're proclaiming this not as a like preach it kind of sermon, but as a reminder, okay, it's going to be okay because God has never left me and God continues to be my refuge and God will always be my help. So I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And so then the author goes on, therefore we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Now, In the ancient world in particular, and still for us today, when we think about the earth and the mountains and how glorious and majestic mountains look, they're normally like the strongest part of creation. They're things that you can go, yeah, they're really good. Um, You can count on them. We don't have to be afraid of them falling into the sea or toppling over or anything like that. But in this this psalm, where the mountains are normally understood to be the most stable, the most... uh, enduring and solid feature of the landscape, the author says, you know what, even if the earth crumbles and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we don't need to be afraid. Uh, And I want to just stop there for a second and remind you that we've talked a little bit this year, starting going way back to January, about how the sea in the Hebrew scriptures, the sea often represents chaos. It represents the forces of evil evil, and the disturbances in the world around us. And so when the author says, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the author is kind of saying, even if the worst possible thing were to happen, even if all the forces of chaos and darkness seem to be trying, triumphing against me, I don't actually need to be afraid. Because right at the very beginning in Genesis 1, we find God hovering over the watery chaos. We find God sovereign over everything that is terrifying and uncertain and unsure and bringing stillness and peace and bringing order out of that chaos. And so when the author seems to be saying, man, even if the worst possible thing should happen, even if the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, even within that, There's a reminder that God is actually always in control of the chaos and is always able to bring peace. And so the way that the psalmist goes on to remind themselves of this is they they move in the next section to say, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Now, there's a kind of a difference here between the threat that's outside the city and the threat of everything falling apart and the mountains falling into the heart of the sea and all that could be going out outside. The the psalmist does this quick flip and says, but there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, that might seem like a weird kind of adjustment until you know a little bit about the context of Jerusalem back in the day and, in fact, still today. So one of the things about Jerusalem, 
uh, is that it was a city that had no natural water source within the city. But there was an amazing water source just outside of the city called the Gihon Spring, the Gihon Spring. Uh, and that spring, they kind of tapped it to water all of the gardens outside of the city, all of the king's gardens and all of the crops. And it provided incredible irrigation to all of the land around Jerusalem, which was otherwise fairly barren in, in a whole bunch of ways. Now, that's an awesome thing because it means that the city's got all of these crops and everything that it needs and beautiful gardens surrounding it. And that's all really great, right? Until in around about uh, 742 BC, this is, um, an Assyrian king, a guy called Sennacherib, came and attacked Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, and particularly the king Hezekiah, had forewarning that this was happening because the Assyrians had been totally conquering the region all around um, what we call the ancient Near East, so all around uh, Israel, Palestine, Syria, all those kind of, around right, the whole area, um, and had already been on a journey from the heart of the Assyrian Empire, right down to basically to Egypt in the end, uh, conquering cities. And the Assyrians at the time were just ruthless, ruthless in warfare. They were masters of warfare at the time. And they were masters of psychological warfare as well. So um, they would do like brutal things in battle and then take Polaroids and stick them up on the wall. Um, it's just that it took slightly longer to develop than a Polaroid because they had to chisel it out in stone, Right. So actually, they were bas reliefs, but same, same. Um, and so whenever you went to visit the Assyrian king or went to any of their palaces, as you're walking into the throne room and coming into the palace, you would walk past these massive reliefs, like bigger than the walls of this hall, that just had huge engravings of what the Assyrians did to people that were disobedient to them or that defied their king. And they were not pretty. I won't go into detail now. Normally I do because, you know, I'm a bit sad that way. Uh, but that was just awful, some of the things that they would do. And so because of that, their reputation just went out into all the known world about how awful they were. And so Hezekiah knows that this army who has been undefeated at this point of time is coming towards his city and going to do these things to his people and that there's nothing that they can do. The Israelite army at this point in time, the um, Judean army has nothing on the Assyrian army. There is no way that they can stand against them. And so Hezekiah, knowing that this is coming, that he's got maybe a couple of years, um, certainly at least multiple months to prepare for this to come, Hezekiah begins to make plans because he knows that the Assyrians will come and lay siege to the city. And so what Hezekiah does is this. He actually stops up the Gihon Spring that's outside of the city and he stops up all of the irrigation that's on the side walls of Jerusalem and all the stuff that's flowing into the valleys around them. He stops up all of that and he gets his people, his engineers, to build a tunnel right from the spring outside the city to the very heart of Jerusalem inside the walls of the city. And they tunnel through. I've actually got a video that I was going to show you at the beginning and I forgot that I had it, but I might show it to you later because it's really cool. I did. I was like, there was something I was going to do at the beginning. Could you have reminded me next time? Anyway. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, and so they tunneled in and made this amazing tunnel all the way from the Gion Spring to in the middle of Jerusalem. Uh, and that spring, when it came into the city, it formed a pool that was known as the Pool of Siloam, the Siloam Pool. And so when the Assyrians eventually came and laid siege to Jerusalem, where every other city had fallen, Jerusalem 
continued to last for a period of time because they didn't have to fear that they would have no water. Because they had water running like a river to the very heart of the city. Because the king had made preparations knowing what was coming. In fact, I've got uh, a picture to show you that is of the Gion Spring running to this pool of Siloam. That's today. Now, Sennacherib invited, sorry, invited, invaded Jerusalem in 742 BC. And Hezekiah built the tunnel in the preparation for that attack. This photo was taken just a couple of years ago. The spring that was dug then, over 2,700 years ago, continues to flow today. Because regardless of the chaos outside, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fear. God will help her at break of day. So the author of this psalm, when they're saying, I don't need to be afraid because there's rivers inside, they're actually comparing the presence of God with us to the Gion Spring inside Jerusalem that has never failed for 2,700 years plus to bring fresh water right inside the city of Jerusalem. The author is saying that the presence of God with us can bring that same reassurance. When things feel scary and crazy outside, we can know the Spirit of God, the presence of God in us, bringing refreshment, bringing peace, bringing a sense that it's going to be okay because we're not going to run out of refreshment. We're not going to run out of resources. And so the author goes on, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. Think of what's going on for Jerusalem. But God lifts God's voice and the earth melts. Everything is still. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so the author here is looking back on past times when God has kept God's people safe and and reminding themselves that this is a God who is able to bring good out of pain who's able to bring safety out of uncertainty. This is a God that has done it before and can do it again. And even today, when we read this psalm, we have the chance to reflect together and to reflect even within ourselves and go, okay, this is a God who has brought peace in the past. This is a God who has brought reassurance in the past. And this is a God who promises to continue to do that today. This is Jesus who says, do not be troubled, do not be afraid. My own peace I give to you, I bequeath to you. Jesus says, I will give you my very own peace. And so there's this reassurance. So in part two, we've got the presence of God in our midst, dwelling within us, no matter how dark things seem. And so the poem invites us to kind of hold steady and keep faith when things seem crazy outside. There's also a sense in this psalm that we're not just going to scrape through the circumstances, but we're actually going to find joy and fulfillment and grace with the grace of God that will never run out. That always makes me think of Lamentations 3. It's another really popular one, yeah? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That's what the psalmist is saying to us. The presence of God renders all hope of catching or demolishing the city utterly ridiculous to the people at the time that are afraid of their enemies. And in the same way, the presence of God with you today makes it ridiculous the thought that you could be abandoned, the thought that you could find yourself alone with no help, the thought that God might abandon you, the thought that there's no way forward for you. The presence of God within you the love of God for you that never fails makes that a ridiculous thought because God is within you. So even though mountains and kingdoms can't be, contact, can't be counted, counted on, we know that God is absolutely trustworthy. Uh, and just like the city of Jerusalem could find its security in God, we too can continue to find our security in God. Uh, the other thing I love about this um, that idea of the river within us is it connects to a lot of the ideas that we started talking about and we're going to talk about again after Easter within the book of John. Because if you know the book of John, you'll know that in John chapter 4 and John chapter 7, Jesus refers to himself as living water and says, if anyone, who thir- any, if anyone thirsts, you can come to me and you'll find springs of living water will well up within you, overflowing for other people quenching your own thirst but becoming something that quenches thirst in the lives of other people Uh, and so there's that connection there as well with that between the river of God within us and the living water that Jesus talks about but having said that the psalm kind of takes a weird turn and in verse 8 it says come and see what the Lord has done the desolations he has brought on the earth He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. And it kind of pushes us through, pushes us through. Uh, And I don't know about you, but I'm really uncomfortable when I read verse 8. and go, oh, the desolations God has brought on the earth. Like, ah, no, not awesome. What? What? Why is God bringing desolations to the earth? That's not a great thought for me. There's a couple of things to put that in context. Number one, there's a story right at the beginning of Scripture about this massive flood that happens. It's in Genesis chapter 6. We know it as the story of Noah and the flood. And at the end of that story, there's this um, moment where God makes a covenant with humankind and says, never again will I destroy the earth with a flood. Never again will I destroy the earth this way. And God actually makes a promise to God's people, I am not going to desolate you. I am not going to destroy you. So there's kind of that happening in the Hebrew Scriptures. But there's this other thing happening in the Scriptures that we have to understand that in the ancient world, everything that happened in the natural world around them, they attributed to the gods, whether good or bad. So if desolation happens, if war happens, if something happens... In their um, worldview, God did that thing. Now, I would want to put a little bit of distance between myself and that view. Not because I don't think that God is all-powerful. I do. I believe that God is the all-powerful creator of all things. My problem with that view is that, unthinkingly, it makes God responsible for a heck of a lot of evil that happens in the world. And unthinkingly, if we don't, or uncritically, if we adopt a view like that, we start to attribute to God some pretty atrocious things and say, God did that. And then um, we make ourselves kind of the good guys on the in with God 
And there's bad people out there that God is doing bad things to to protect us good people in here. And I don't actually see that being the message of Scripture. Um, we will unpack that another time and another day uh, and a lot more effectively than I'm doing right now. But for now, I just, want, I just want to say, I wholeheartedly believe in a God who defines themselves as love. A God who tells us that when they created the whole cosmos, the whole universe, it was good and who has been committed to the flourishing of the earth and to all people on the earth from that day to this unceasingly and will to continue for eternity. I believe in a God who is committed to our flourishing. I believe in a God who has control of all things where there's nothing outside of God's control, but I do not believe in a God who is malicious. I do not believe in a God in my image or in the image of the worst rulers of the earth who has a bad hair day and wipes out whole people. That is not a God that I believe in. I can see how that explanation has fitted worldviews in the past, and I don't mean that in a kind of elitist, disparaging way. It's just a reality historically. But that is not a God that I believe in. I believe in a God who defines God's self through the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe, I take seriously, that Jesus is the one who explains God the Father, God the Creator to us. Uh, and so I, when I see God, um, the desolations God has brought to the earth, um, I interpret that as the psalmist talk, looking at the control of God over all things, but I don't see it as a malicious God who is destroying things willfully to protect his favorite people. Does that make sense? Uh, and in fact, the next bit goes on to say that God makes wars cease to the ends of the earth and breaks the bow and shatters the spear and ends the chaos and the destruction that we see going through the world in so many situations. Sorry. And then from there, it moves into the next bit that was probably everyone's very favorite bit. After saying that God is a God who ends conflict, who breaks the weapons, there's this statement, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted over the nations. I will be exalted over the earth. I used to hear that uh, when I read it, almost like I would have a picture in my mind of a parent with a baby and the baby's freaking out and crying, and the parent is holding the baby in their arms, going, shh, stilling the baby, whispering to the baby, comforting the baby, shh, be still. It's okay. I'm here. I've got you. I'm holding you. I'm comforting you. You're going to be okay. And I think there's certainly times that God does that. The challenge is that in this particular passage, that's not actually what's going on. Because in the context of everything that's been said in this psalm, there's chaos out there and there's wars out there and there's mountains falling down, earthquakes and crazy things going on without there. And God's not just in here going, you're okay, hush little baby, don't say a word. That's not what's happening. So in the Hebrew, when we get to be still and know that I am God, what's actually going on is be still. It's actually this incredible command. It's a forceful stop. Enough. It's an authoritative command that the chaos would end and stillness would come and will reign. 
It's actually an echo of what's going to happen in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus, echoing back to this passage, will stand on a boat in the middle of a storm when everyone is freaking out that they're going to drown and will say, Be still to the wind and the waves. And they will go, and everything will be calm. This isn't God just freaking out, hoping that you will stop crying if he just rocks you enough and sings you the right song. This is God speaking to the chaos and saying, you will stop now. And ending the confusion and ending the chaos and bringing stillness and peace. Not that it's false that you just calm down in spite of everything, but is a genuine rest within you where the chaos stops and you come to peace, where the wind and the waves obey him and you are able to come to rest. This is the authority of God over everything that is chaos in your life, bringing it to rest. And so on the back of that, I kind of want to end with this thought. God has made the statement, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I am, uh, I am someone who loves being anywhere near water. Uh, I especially love being near the ocean. There's something about being near the ocean that I just get kind of... Um, almost overcome with the hugeness of it, not in a scary way, but for me, the ocean always reminds me of the power and the majesty of God. And so being near the ocean, it just calms me because I remember the immensity of God's love and God's power and God's grace for me. And I get this sense that I am secure in God's love for me and that things are going to be okay. It creates for me an incredible sense of safety and reassurance. It's almost like being near the ocean reminds me that God is control, in control over all of the chaos, all of that watery chaos. And God has promised to reside within me, to take me under God's wings, and to protect me. And not just protect me within the storm, although God does that, but to still the storm and make things genuinely okay. Um, I think over time... Uh, I've been trying to develop a habit of remembering, of remembering the God who stills the storm, remembering that the God who says, be still and know that I am God, is shouting that within the chaos to get my attention and to command the storm to stop. Um, it's also true that I still struggle with that at times. Um, it's very much true that a lot of how I experience that and the reassurance that I get from that is through my relationships with people that embody or incarnate, is a very Christian word, that sense of safety and refuge. Um, and if you've hung out with me in Bront much or heard, us, like, heard me talk about her, you will know that she is very much a place of refuge for me, someone who um, creates and incarnates, embodies that, that refuge and safety in God and is a tangible reminder to me of the grace of God. Uh, and years ago, I doubt that she will even remember this, but years ago when Bront and I chatted about this passage, she made the comment, um, 
that when it says in the psalm, you know, come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations that God has brought. In other words, the way that God has calmed situations and, and stilled situations in the past. Come and see. She made this comment that come and see takes courage when you're afraid to look up. When you're in a situation where you are so crippled by anxiety that you are just trying to hold it together, your head is down and you're just trying to focus on what's good and just block out everything that's happening externally, it's hard to listen to that invitation to come and see the works of God. When you're afraid of what you will find if you lift up your head, when you've experienced so much pain or rejection, or bullying, or marginalization, or whatever the case might be, that you don't want to lift your head anymore because you are afraid of what you will see and how you will be treated. It is scary for someone to say, come and see, God is really good, God stills the storm. And this is where I think it really hits home for us as a people. That that come and see moment It needs to happen for us in community. It needs to happen for us in a way that we become a people and a community that create a sense of safety and refuge, that create the community that we needed when we were teenagers wrestling with our stuff, when we were pastors and leaders wrestling with being treated like crap on church staff. Uh, when we were in situations where people at church were treating us as people that didn't even have a right to exist, what we needed was a community of people that was like a city with a river inside, constant refreshment, constant safety, constant... That is so much of my heart for New City Church that all would find refuge and life in Jesus because we are a community where we can genuinely say to people, come and see, come and see the works of the Lord. Come and see the healing that God is doing in our lives through each other, through authentic worship, through authentic community. Come and see. The thing that was desolate, brimming with life. Come and see the people who thought they were always going to be alone, who thought they would never be able to hang out with other people and worship Jesus, hanging out with people that love them and worshiping Jesus and being unafraid. It's life together in covenant community. It's the potential for chaos turned into a testimony of God's goodness and of the security that we find in Jesus that becomes like springs of living water welling up within us so that we become safety and refuge for each other and for other people. Dora, there's only 27 pages of notes to go. Just kidding. It's all right. The people on the recording can see how many minutes to go, so they're okay. (laughs) So within this psalm, what we've seen is this movement of God being sovereign over nature, being sovereign over cities, being sovereign over kingdoms, being sovereign over the whole whole world. And yet at its heart, this is a personal psalm. For all of that huge kind of universal language and looking at the huge picture when everything feels out of control, this is a psalm where we can say that I am the God of all things. That God is my refuge. 
this God who, when God revealed God's name to Moses on Mount Sinai centuries and millennia ago, when God said, I'm Yahweh, I'm I am, God also revealed, I am the gracious and compassionate God, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the God who is our comfort. This is the God who is our refuge. And this is the God who can be our refuge today. So this is where I want to finish. With challenge and hope. This God who can still nations and kingdoms and natural disasters, who can still bullying and rejection and anxiety and depression. And I'm not saying... Stop your medication, there's a quick fix. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have a God who can bring comfort and hope that allows us to keep going in spite of everything else. This God can be your refuge. This God is my refuge. This God wants to personally be a river inside of you bringing peace and safety and reassurance. And maybe some of you tonight are going, I actually need that reminder and I, I need that. I need that river of God flowing inside of me. I need a reminder of the refuge of God. But there's a second aspect to this that I want to, that I want to just touch on. In the Bible, the refuge of God is not just for individual people. In the Bible, the refuge of God is so important that whole cities are set up as places of refuge for people that are in fear for their lives, that they can go to these cities and know that they will be safe, know that they won't be murdered, know that no one is coming after them. So safety and the refuge of God in the Old Testament is not just for us personally as individuals, but it becomes something that we create corporately so we establish structures of safety and refuge for people. And some of us... We're at the point where we need to recognize that God is your refuge. God has been healing you. God has been doing this thing inside of you, bringing you back to life, letting you know that you're safe here, that Jesus loves and accepts you, that you are the beloved of God and everything that you always hoped and thought but were told couldn't be true, it's true. You are the beloved of God and you can find refuge and safety here. That is true for you. But some of us, there's also this nudge of the Holy Spirit that because God is our refuge, because God is our safe place, it is time for us to begin to dismantle systems of oppression and structures of exploitation and abuse and to create cities of refuge. And that's why this new city is not just about you feeling safe and comforted within yourself although that is crucially important and we are all about that. It's actually about creating structures of safety and tearing, out, tearing down unsafe structures. So this is what I want to say as we finish tonight. We're going to go a little bit old school. I don't know what church was like for you when you were growing up or in years past, and this is going to be different from tradition to tradition. So here's a little bit of a taste of my tradition. In my church, um, the churches where I used to pastor and led for you know, a couple of decades, um, one of the things that we would often do at the end of the service would 
we would invite people who want to pray, who just need prayer. When I was a kid in the Salvation Army, there was actually an actual altar up the front of every church where you could come and kneel and someone would kneel with you and put their arm around you and just pray for you. It was a really precious thing. Um, In the churches I attended as an adult, you could come and just stand at the front and um, someone, a pastor or a leader or just someone who loved you, would just come and stand with you, put their hand on your shoulder and pray with you. And I want to offer that to you tonight. And uh, I think, I have a sneaking suspicion that for some of you, it's been a really long time since someone did that for you. And I want to offer that to you tonight. It's a very intimate gathering. It's a small gathering. and I don't want you to feel ashamed. I don't want you to feel um, like you stand out. So what we're going to do is Bront is going to put on some music in a minute. And I'm going to just invite you, um, if, you're, if you're good with this and if you've lost circulation in your limbs because Karen always preaches for so long, you can just get up, go for a walk, have a cuppa, have some more of the chocolates. That's all good. But if you would like some prayer, I would invite you to just come to the front, even more to the front than you already are. Um, and just let us know. You could just hang there um, and just let us know that you would like prayer. And me or Steph or anyone else who's here, because every single one of you is someone in whom is the spirit of the living God. Any one of you who wants to, who feels moved to pray for someone else, you can just come and stand with that person and we're going to pray for them. If you're someone who's needing that sense of refuge and safety in God right now, then I want you to come over here on this side and just hang out there. And then we're going to come and we're going to surround you and we're going to pray for you. Um, I promise I won't pray in tongues or freak you out. We're just going to stand with you and pray for you. If you're someone who's feeling that nudge, that that quickening of the Holy Spirit, that sense of discomfort that's building inside of you, that God is saying it is time for you to establish safety for other people. I want you to come stand over here. It doesn't matter which group you're in, neither one is better than the other. It's just some of us are at different places. And honestly, any given moment, I could be in either of those groups. Like legit. Tonight, I'd probably be in that one. (laughs) A lot of times I'd be in that one. It just depends. But if you would like prayer, I'm going to invite you. If you just want prayer because you just need the stillness of God and the refuge of God in your own life tonight, come and stand here. Or bring your chair if you don't want to stand. It's all good. But if you're, seeing, and if you're sensing that nudge of God to create safe places for other people and to challenge some of the systems that are standing against safety, then I'm going to invite you to come over here. And as people that love you, we're going to pray for you and pray for one another. Is that cool?